Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to be covering Acts chapters 10 through 15. We're going to start with a vision that Cornelius is going to have, an individual who's outside of the faith tradition of the Jews. And Cornelius is going to be brought into the fold of the covenant believers. And there is going to be this interaction that Cornelius is going to have with Peter. And this is going to set the stage for what will happen at the conclusion of this podcast in Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem Council, where the council of leaders in Jerusalem will get together and make a monumental decision that the Gentiles can be brought into the gospel fold. In between these two events, there's a lot of other things happening. We'll read about Peter coming to Jerusalem and giving his report. We'll hear about Peter being arrested and delivered in Acts chapter 12. The death of Herod will also occur in Acts 12. Paul's first missionary journey will begin And that will be reported in Acts chapters 13 and 14. Paul will then turn to the Gentiles and teach them. And in the midst of this, in the 14th chapter, he's going to be experiencing a lot of opposition. And then finally, as we've discussed, the end of this podcast will cover the Jerusalem Council, their decision regarding what to do with the Gentiles, and then them putting forth letters to the saints dispersed throughout the Roman Empire regarding this decision. And the very end of Acts chapter 15 is the beginning of Paul's second missionary journey. So let's jump into chapter 10. Now I'm going to see this a little bit differently than sometimes it's portrayed in our curriculum. And I'm very much open to what the, the way the curriculum presents it. But there's two schools of thought with Acts chapter 10. One school of thought is, this is when the announcement was given to send the gospel to everyone, including the Gentiles. This is the long-promised day where finally we send the message to everyone. That's one way to view it, and we kind of present that in our curriculum. The other way I think we can present it is, Jesus gave that command. If you look at the very last verse of Matthew, Matthew chapter 8 ends with the ascension of Jesus, and as he ascends, as he goes into heaven, he says, Go ye therefore into all the world, preaching my gospel. It is my contention that Jesus sent them to the Gentiles long before Acts chapter 10, but that wasn't their tradition. That wasn't the way they traditionally think. Therefore, the Lord has to really shake their traditions. I love what Joseph Smith said about himself in Joseph Smith history. He says that he was destined to be an annoyer and a disturber of Satan's kingdom. And quite often, Joseph found himself in the position of breaking down the traditions that people had as they came into the church. And that was a struggle for him. He makes the comment about people flying to pieces like glass every time something comes that violates their tradition. I think this is a big problem in religion in general, but even in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We love tradition. And to me, Acts chapter 10 was a, let's question our traditions. Peter, I need you to think broader. When I said, go ye into all the world, I wasn't saying, go find all the Jews in all the world. I really did mean, go to the Gentiles. 
but I don't think you've seen that yet. And so to me, Cornelius is the perfect way to do it, not because this is a major church announcement, but because Cornelius was the last person they expected Jesus to save. Cornelius was a Roman centurion. Who in the world would have thought that the atonement was for Romans? And so Cornelius comes along to shake that very foundation, to say, Peter, you've got to rethink this. And the very vision that Peter has where these animals come down that he's never eaten in the past out of diligence to the law of Moses, he's never eaten that. And now the invitation was, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, not so, Lord, I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the commandment was, no, what God has cleansed, call thou not common. The law of Moses is over, Peter, and that means a lot of changes are coming, and one of those changes is go to the Gentiles. I think this whole chapter can be seen as an invitation to all of us to ask, have my traditions led me away from truth? And so we read here in Acts chapter 10 that there was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of the band, a devout man and one that feared God with all his house, which gave alms to the people and prayed to God always. So this is an individual who's a Gentile, but he's a God-fearer. He honors and worships him, but he's not Jewish. But because he's this individual of great faith, and we even read later that he's fasting on this occasion, look in verse 3. He saw in a vision an angel of God coming to him, and when he looked on him, he was afraid. And he said, What is it, Lord? And he said unto him, Thy prayers and thine alms are come up for a memorial before God. Now send men down to Joppa, and call for one Simon, whose surname is Peter. He lodgeth with one Simon a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. He shall tell thee what thou ought to do. Now, as a side note, Peter is with this individual in Joppa. His name is Simon. He's a tanner. And I don't think it would be hard to find out where that is. Because if you walked into Joppa and you said to people, hey, I'm trying to find this guy who's a tanner, that's one place everyone will know where it is. Because those that were tanners, that tanned hide, used a substance that was certainly odorous, and everybody would be able to smell where the tanner was. And I think that's probably why it was by the seaside, because, hey, the ocean breezes right there. If you go to Joppa, the ocean breeze comes off the Mediterranean, and it's wonderful. And so it makes sense that he would be there by the seaside. And so when Cornelius is told this, he sends two of his household servants and a soldier. So he sends three guys down to Joppa. Now that would be about a 55 kilometer walk if they went on foot. So that would probably take about 12 hours. Maybe he sent them on horses. We don't know, but that's, you know, that's a distance. Now, luckily it's flat. It's along the coast, but still that's a good distance to go. So they go down there. Now, while this is happening, while Cornelius is having his experience with the angel, Peter's having an experience with the Spirit. Look in verse 9. We read this. On the morrow, as they went on their journey and drew nigh, Peter went upon the housetop to pray. And it was about the sixth hour. And he became very hungry and would have eaten. 
But while this is happening, we read in verse 10, he fell into a trance and the heaven opened. Peter has this vision of a sheet with animals that are not permissible to be eaten in Judaism. They're unclean animals. Now for a list of those animals, just go to Leviticus 11. I'm assuming that some of the animals in Leviticus 11 are on this sheet and the voice tells him to eat it three times. And three times, he says, I can't do it. And the voice says to him, what God has cleansed, don't call common. And so he thinks about it. He thinks, okay, what should this mean? That's verse 17. And while this is happening, Cornelius's guys are at the gate and they come to him. We read in verse 19, as Peter thought on the vision, the spirit said to him, three men seek you. Arise and get thee down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. And so Peter's starting to put this together. He has this vision. He's hearing the voice of the Lord, and then he's moving in revelation, not having the whole picture, but he's moving with faith. And so what happens? Look in verse 21. Peter went down to the men which were sent to him from Cornelius, and he said, why are you here? And they said, Cornelius the centurion, a just man and one that fears God and of good report among all the nations of the Jews, was warned from God by a holy angel to send for you, Peter, in this house. And so what happens? He goes with those men. He goes with them all the way up to Caesarea. And it says, Cornelius met him, fell down at his feet, and worshiped him. And I love how Peter corrects him and says, no, I'm just a guy. Uh, Don't worship me. We worship the Lord. But the main point here is that Cornelius is converted to Christ. Cornelius receives the gospel. I think there's another interesting thing here that is not necessarily stated in the text, but talk about Peter's humility. Peter goes on, if it's a walk, a 12-hour walk to meet this individual. And those of you that have served missions, maybe it wasn't 12 hours, but you probably had days where you like worked really hard and walked really, really far and sacrificed greatly to do the work of the Lord. And I see this either way, whether he's taking a horse or walking, he's covering quite some distance to uh, preach Jesus to this individual, which I think would have gone against his intercultural biases. Yeah. So the end result here is Peter rises above the culture, the tradition, the bias that they've been swimming in, and now makes a shift in his behavior. He changes church policy, and now we're going to take the gospel to the world. Peter got it. The effect of all of this is the light went on in Peter's head, and he says in verse 34, of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. Now I get it. I understand that. But in every nation, he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. Boom. The light goes on. And Peter now says, we will send the gospel to every nation. We will now find those who believe and fear and love and want to serve God, regardless of any other preconceived notion or any status of the past. If you love God, we're bringing the gospel to you. I like that. What's interesting to me, Bryce, is I think cultural biases are so easy to see in everyone else, right? But it's difficult to see in ourselves. I really appreciate this comment from President Kimball, where he says about Peter, he says, 
prejudices were deep rooted in Peter and it took a vision to help him cast off his bias. Peter expressed his lifelong prejudices and habits in saying, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Then the voice made clear that the program was for all. What God has cleansed, call not thou common. Peter's long-sustained prejudices finally gave way under the power of the thrice-repeated command. When the devout Gentile Cornelius immediately thereafter appealed to him for the gospel, the full meaning of the vision burst upon Peter, and he exclaimed, God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. So President Kimball is calling this out, saying Peter had cultural biases, and it took a revelation from the Lord to kind of open his mind, right? And that's my invitation as you study Acts chapter 10, is to understand that occasionally our culture creeps in to create a tradition that may actually contrast or push against some of our true religious principles. I'm very much a fan of Malcolm Gladwell. I love him as an author, and he wrote a book called Outliers. In one of his chapters, he talked about Korean airlines were crashing in greater numbers than most airlines throughout the world. And so they hired a consultant company, and they came in, and it was pretty clear after the study what was causing Korean airlines to crash. It was their culture. In their culture, you do not speak up to a superior. You don't question You don't point out flaws the superior is making. That's just not according to their culture. So if a pilot made a mistake, the co-pilot didn't feel, according to their culture, that they could correct the pilot, and planes were crashing because of it. So at what point do we pause and say, wait, I have some biases, I have some prejudices, my culture has created a problem, and it's in violation of the gospel of Jesus Christ? I think one of the things Acts chapter 10 opens our mind to is this idea that these individuals served and loved the Lord, but they were also swimming in culture. And I think this just opens up our mind to ask ourselves, Lord, is it I? And I wonder in 100 years or in 200 years, what will people say about me? And I think maybe we can give these people grace because they're living in their water and we live in ours. Now, in chapter 11, this is the beginning of where there's some uh, disagreement between individuals that are living as Jews, but also believe that Jesus is the Christ. Now, in history and in scholarship, often these people are called Ebionites, uh, but not always. But what we have here is a group of people that live in Jerusalem, and they're strict followers of the law, and yet they believe in Jesus. We also have other people in Jerusalem that are strict followers of the law, Jewish, but they don't necessarily believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And a lot of this is coming from the scholar Raymond Brown. If you read some of his stuff, he talks a lot about this, where up until the temple's destroyed in 70 AD, the Jews were all together. So there were Jews that believed in Jesus, there were Jews that maybe didn't necessarily believe he was the Messiah, but they would go to synagogue together. And the leader, or at least among the Christians, the leader of this group is going to be James. Now, this is James, the brother of the Lord, and he is famous for this, being very strict and obedient and following the commands of Torah. And so we have this tension right away in chapter 11, and it starts in verse 1 and 2. The apostles and the brethren that were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had received the word of God. 
Now, my guess is this isn't just Peter. I'm just throwing this out there. I think this is probably also happening, that there are other Gentiles. Remember, Jesus visited the Decapolis, the, the 10 Gentile cities. And what did he do there? Like, I guarantee he was famous. And there are probably great numbers of individuals that followed Jesus to the best of their ability. And so there were people who were like, we want more of this. Some of them probably came to Jerusalem and found out that Jesus's brother was there and probably had conversations. And so we read in verse two, that when Peter was come up to Jerusalem, that they which were of the circumcision contended with him. Okay, that's another way of saying those who are following strictly the rules of Torah. And one of those is that you be circumcised. And the Gentiles, in general, were not. So Peter rehearses to them the situation. They get upset with him, the people that are of the circumcision, in verse 3, because he ate with them. Now remember, table fellowship was generally looked down upon with Gentiles. And so what does Jesus do constantly through the Gospels? It's like what you said, Bryce, he's always teaching this. So Peter rehearses the matter, and he says, I saw a vision. And he talks about how it was done three times, this vision, in verse 10. And men from Caesarea came down to me, and they sent me, and, and I accompanied them, and I taught the gospel to them. And then when he taught them the gospel, in verse 15, we read that the Holy Ghost fell on them, in the plural. And so one of the things we see here is that Peter is open to revelation. And the hint, really, to me, is verse 17 at the end, where he says, what was I that I could withstand God? That really is the spirit of Peter. And so towards the end of this chapter, we read an interesting comment that the church grew at this place called Antioch, and that the disciples of Jesus were first called Christians in Antioch. Remember, prior to this, they were those in the way. And so uh, we read in verse 26 that they're now going to be called Christians. And then we have this prophecy by a man named Agabus in verse 28. Agabus is from Jerusalem, but he goes to Antioch, and he predicts a famine, a dearth that will be throughout all the world. Now, that actually did happen. There was a series of famines. There was one in 41 and 42 in the common era in Rome, and I don't think he's referring to that one. There was a second one in 45 AD, or 45 in the common era, in Judea. That's probably the one that is referred to here. And the third famine is in 50 CE or 50 AD in Greece. And there was a fourth famine in Rome in 52. So there were a series of multiple famines that occurred right about this time. And this helps historians date the book of Acts. It helps them kind of see the context of, okay, what is this referring to? Who was Agabus? So this kind of gives you a timeline. Verse 28 of Acts chapter 11, you can kind of put to right about a decade after Jesus has been crucified, and we see the growth of Christianity as it spread. Now, chapter 12 is the struggle we all have. We compare what God is doing in my life to what God is doing in your life, and we see through such a small little lens we don't remember pre-mortal life. We don't see into the past. Heavenly Father does. Heavenly Father knows me. He knows where I came from. He knows where I'm going. He knows exactly what I need, and he knows the order in which I need those things. Now, it comes to the forefront in chapter 12, because James, the brother of John, is going to be killed by the sword. 
in defense of Christ. He's standing up for truth and righteousness, and he's going to be killed for it. And the Lord allowed that. The Lord allowed James to be killed. Now, Peter's life is also threatened. And they put him in prison, and prayer was made, and an angel comes and opens up the prison and lets Peter out. So why didn't an angel come and open up the gate, so to speak, and save James? Why did James get the sword and Peter got the angel? Do you see what we do? It's that comparison. And the reality is my story is very different than your story. And if I trust the author of that story, I trust that we will all end up with a glorious result. But the chapter I might be in today might be a sword chapter. For my own benefit, for my glory, today might be a sword day where today he is tearing down a wall to rebuild my small little cottage into a palace. Today might be a demolition day. And the worst thing that we can do is look at Peter who got the angel today and be angry at God or feel sorry for ourselves. Why is Peter getting the angel and I'm getting the sword? Instead, we've got to trust the author of the story. And the ending of that story is as glorious as he can make it. And he is the God omnipotent who can do all things. I trust that the Lord knows what he's doing. And I'm not going to compare. Just because today is an angel day doesn't mean Peter always gets angel days. And just because today is a sword day for James doesn't mean James always gets sword days. I love how this is portrayed in the Chronicles of Narnia. On several occasions, someone criticizes Aslan for the way he's treating them, something he's doing in someone else's life. And Aslan states the following, I am telling you your story, not hers. No one is told any story but their own. Therefore, we just have to trust the author of the story who knows us and loves us and is doing what is best for each of us. Isaiah kind of does this in chapter 28, where he talks about some people are barley, some people are rye, some people are principal wheat. But in the end, after the harvest, I love how Isaiah concludes this. Verse 29, this also cometh forth from the Lord of hosts, which is wonderful in counsel, and excellent in working. I promise you that James, someday when he looks back on his life, will say the Lord was wonderful in counsel and excellent in working. Peter, who got an angel today and a sword tomorrow, is going to look back on his life and say, the Lord was wonderful in counsel and excellent in working. And I promise you will look back on the story that the divine creator wrote for you and say he was wonderful and excellent, even with the sword days thrown in. Now, is there a need sometimes for the sword in all of our lives? Yes, and I don't understand why, but I know that he understands why. In fact, all of the apostles in one way or another, are going to face the sword. All of them are going to taste some very bitter days and feel a lot of opposition and ultimately be killed. 
So we ought to take a moment and just maybe talk about, now since this is the first time we've watched one of the Quorum of the Twelve be killed, we should probably talk about some of the others and just kind of show that these twelve were blessed abundantly, but they also faced the sword as well. So, Mike, why don't you tell us about the fate of the Quorum of the Twelve, at least to the knowledge that we have it? Yeah, we have pieces. I think the main thing is we're dealing with history and we're dealing with tradition. And having not been there, I don't know. But I will tell you, the tradition is rich and deep. Now, John, uh, John the beloved apostle, is the only apostle to avoid violent death. And yet he had horrible things uh, at least tried on him. He was ordered to be sent from Ephesus to Rome and was thrown into a boiling cauldron of oil, but that he escaped unharmed. Now we have this from 3 Nephi chapter 28, that John was translated, that Satan could have no power over him or to tempt him, and that he underwent a change whereby he would not die and would not taste death. And to me, 3 Nephi chapter 28 is really our best description of what happened to John. I think here with James, it's pretty plain here, and there's other accounts that ratify this, James was martyred for his belief in Jesus. So we have James, the brother of John in Acts 12, but we also have James the just, the brother of Jesus, He was a leader of the early Christian community in Jerusalem, as we've talked about previously, and he was, at least in the tradition, martyred by being pushed from the pinnacle of the temple and then beaten with a fuller's club and stoned to death. This tradition is recounted in several early Christian texts. We have, according to Josephus' writings, that James was killed because there were Jews that were angry with him and his belief in Jesus, and... Eusebius says regarding James, quote, He was called the just from the time of the Savior to the present day, for there were many that bore the name of James. He was holy from his mother's womb. He drank no wine nor strong drink, nor did he eat flesh. Many even of the rulers believed. And he goes on. But essentially what Eusebius is talking about, and it wasn't just Eusebius, but it was others, mentioned that James was famous for being such a good follower of the law. And yet, because of this, and also because of his belief in Jesus, it caused a lot of tension in Jerusalem because he was such a pillar of righteousness, and yet the Jews didn't want these people to believe in Jesus. And so... James was thrown off the pinnacle of the temple. Paul is another one of the apostles that was also, according to tradition, martyred for his belief in Jesus. Clement of Rome, in his letter to the Corinthians, gives us really the earliest account of Paul's death, essentially telling us that Nero had Paul decapitated. Another church historian, Tertullian, in the second century, compared Paul's death to that of John the Baptist, who was also beheaded. After Paul, we have Matthew, the tax collector. Legends disagree as to whether he died a natural death or as a martyr, but there is some evidence that he was martyred. Uh, Two of the other apostles are Jude and Simon, 
and we can read about this in the Acts of Simon and Jude. And there's another story called the Golden Legend, which talks about these individuals staying in a region where they were preaching for about 15 months. And according to this text, they baptized so many people. It says that they baptized 60,000, and that caused a great commotion. And because of the popularity of their work, there were religious leaders in the area who were angry with them and have them killed. Now, there's different sources on this. We put this stuff in the show notes for you if you're interested more on Jude and Simon and actually all of these individuals. We give the references if you're interested in finding uh, the source material for this stuff. Matthias, Judas's replacement of the 12, if you remember at the beginning of Acts, Matthias is his replacement. And according to tradition, Matthias is stoned at Jerusalem and beheaded. Another apostle, Andrew, the brother of Peter, he preaches the gospel among many of the nations in Asia, but when he gets to Edessa, he is taken and crucified. And according to some legends, this is where we get St. Andrew's cross. Mark, who was Peter's missionary companion, Mark is dragged by the people of Alexandria, and they kill him in Alexandria, which was a big city at the time. Bartholomew, the Apostle Bartholomew, he translates the Gospel of Matthew, according to tradition, into the language of the people of India. And during this time when he's spreading the Gospel of Jesus Christ in India, he is uh, killed, he's martyred. Thomas, remember him, we've talked about him back in John, where sometimes he's called Doubting Thomas. I don't like that moniker, but it seems to have stuck. Uh, He's also called Didymus, which means twin. He preaches the gospel in Parthia and India, and then according to tradition, he is martyred there. Luke, known as the evangelist, the author of the gospel, which goes by his name, he travels with Paul through various countries, and according to some of the traditions, was hanged on an olive tree. Barnabas, Paul's missionary companion, he was of Cyprus, but he was of Jewish descent, and his death seems to have taken place around 73 AD. And then finally, Peter, the chief apostle, according to church tradition, was put to death by the emperor Nero in 64 AD, right after the great fire of Rome. And this blaze that kind of went through Rome was, according to some sources, caused by Nero, but then he blamed the Christians for it and used it as a way to persecute them and to, according to the tradition, kill Peter. We read about the death of Peter in John 21, where we read in verse 18 that Jesus says to him, when you were young, thou girdest thyself and walkest whither thou wouldest. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands and another shall gird thee and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. This spake he signifying by what death he should glorify God. And so in those verses, Jesus tells Peter, hey, you're going to die and it's not going to be easy. And it kind of brings us back to this idea of the grand story of our lives. All of us have times when it is dark. And yet, in the grand story of our lives, the darkness will always be overshadowed by the light. Many of you have had experiences in your life that have been gut-wrenching. And know this, you are not alone. The Savior went through it. The apostles, at least according to tradition, went through some of these horrible things. And yet, because of what Father Lehi taught about opposition in all things, 
Think of the experiences of light that they've had. Bryce mentioned in this chapter, Peter's going to see an angel. Peter has seen the resurrected Jesus. So knowing this and that testimony that burned in him, my belief is that that gave him the strength to get through the darkness. And I think that's probably the most important thing that I can say about the death of the apostles. Yes, tradition tells us that they were martyred. Yes, it's horrible. But what does it mean? What does it mean for your life? And how can you take these stories and have it give you strength in your life, in your challenges? I love the moment where Abinadi turned to the priests of Noah in Mosiah chapter 16, verse 1, and said, the time shall come when all shall see the salvation of the Lord, when every nation, kindred, tongue, and people shall see eye to eye and shall confess before God that his judgments are just. When your story is finally finished, beginning to end, when you've read every chapter, not just the sword chapters, but the angel chapters, when you see the whole story that he wrote, I think that's when we fall to our knees and say, he did the right thing. He knew what he was doing, and he got me to the glorious end of the story. Now that leads us to Paul's first mission. Chapter 13 is where Paul is called on his mission. And I believe we can pull out some wonderful little lessons for all of us, but I just want to point out some great lessons for missionaries. So if you're listening to this as a missionary, here's some great suggestions on how to be a missionary. And to the rest of us, if you're preparing to serve a mission, here's some great suggestions on how to be a daily missionary. I love how it begins. Verse 2 the Lord declares, separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work where I have called them. I love that word. Separate me. I've called you. Now, let me add two more phrases, and then we'll look at them all together. Verse 3, when they had fasted and prayed, he laid hands upon them. They were set apart. Think about what that means in our everyday language. I've been separated and called, and set apart, and sent. So let me ask this question. When you received your calling in the church today, whatever it is, you were set apart. So what were you set apart from? I love this quotation from Spencer W. Kimball, and I think about it often. President Kimball declared, the setting apart may be taken literally. It is a setting apart from sin apart from the carnal, apart from everything which is crude, low, vicious, cheap, or vulgar, set apart from the world to a higher plane and thought of activity. Missionaries and all of us in the church are set apart, and we need to realize that. I've been invited to separate myself from telestial, terrestrial behavior I love this little addition from the Book of Mormon. When Ammon, Aaron, Omner, and Himni were set apart, the Lord declared the following. This is what their mission was supposed to do. He said, Go forth among the Lamanites thy brethren and establish my word. Yet ye shall be patient in longsuffering and affliction, that you may show forth good examples unto them in me and I will make an instrument of thee in my hands unto the salvation of many souls. I really think that is the heart and soul of all of our callings, and especially those who are called to serve missions. 
Just a couple more on this list. Verse 9, Paul was filled with the Holy Ghost. I can serve him best in any calling, and especially as a missionary, if I seek to be filled with the Holy Ghost. Uh, Verse 33, as it was written in the Scriptures, he was familiar with the Scriptures. Paul quoted the Scriptures repeatedly. I would encourage any of you preparing to serve a mission to do what the Lord told Hiram Smith to do in the Doctrine and Covenants. Section 11, specifically to Hiram, the Lord says powerfully, before it was time to go out, he said, to seek not to declare my word, but first seek to obtain my word, and then shall your tongue be loosed. Let me put that in perspective. After you have obtained my word, then shall your tongue be loosed. Then if you desire, you shall have my spirit and my word, yea, the power of God unto the convincing of men. Could it be that he was saying, my spirit plus the word of God that resonates in your soul is the power of God unto the convincing of men? So I love that Paul frequently quotes the scriptures. And I think that sets an example for all of us. Do your best to know them. Have the scriptures in your heart. Now, verse 46, Paul and Barnabas waxed bold. I think that's important. Waxed bold. Verse 51, shook off the dust from their feet. And I think the idea here isn't, I'm going to curse you because you've rejected me, but I now leave upon you the responsibility because I have done all that I can do to teach you. Therefore, like Jacob says in Jacob chapter 1, I shake your blood off of me. I have done what I needed to do. But I think that tells us something about the kind of missionary he was. I'm not going to give up until I have done all that I can do. Verse 52, he was filled with joy and with the Holy Ghost. Now, let me just throw one more. He starts with the Jews in Antioch. Verse 14 of chapter 13, he came to Antioch. How did it go in Antioch? Verse 45, the Jews were filled with envy. Verse 50, the Jews stirred up the devout and honorable women and the chief men of the city and raised persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them out of their coasts. So watch what happens. Verse 51, they go to Iconium. How does it go in Iconium? Verse 2 of chapter 14. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and made their minds evil affected against the brethren. Verse 5. There was an assault made both of the Gentiles and of the Jews with their rulers to use them despitefully and to stone them. So verse 6. They go to Lystra and Derbe. So let's remember, they went from Antioch to Iconium to Lystra and Derbe. By the way, we have a map for you in the show notes if you want to try and keep up with these locations. And how does it go in Lystra and Derby? Go to verse 19 of chapter 14. There came thither certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium who persuaded the people and, having stoned Paul, drew him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Now, what's... Paul's reaction. Verse 20, the disciples stood round about. I think they gave him a blessing. I think they healed him. Paul is raised, maybe even raised from the dead. But Paul is brought back. Paul is healed. Now, where does he go? Where does he go? He went to, he went to Antioch, 
and they persecuted him. He went to Iconium, they persecuted him. He went to Lystra, and they stoned him. So where does Paul go? Verse 21. Such a powerful message about disciples of Christ. His work wasn't done. He returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. Boy, if that doesn't preach sermons about missionary work. He went right back to the places where he was persecuted because there was work to be done. There were people to be saved. And I am going to go be brave. I'm going to go right back to where they've persecuted me, and I'm going to find the ones that are looking and seeking. My job isn't done. That's the boldness and the, the bravery of a missionary. And I applaud all of those missionaries who get rejected and yet keep waking up in the morning and keep going out onto those same streets where they've been rejected because there might still be someone out there who they need to find. That is Paul and every faithful missionary who joins the ranks of Jesus' disciples. And so after this, and Paul's having this great success, uh, the question is raised, what should we do with these individuals that are not Jews that are Gentile. That's verse three. They're concerned about the conversion of the Gentiles. They seek the apostles in Jerusalem about this question. That's verse two. And so they're going to have what's going to be called the Jerusalem conference. And the conclusion of this conference will be that the Gentiles can be brought into the gospel fold. That's the main idea of Acts chapter 15, is we have these cultural biases going on, and so the apostles are going to meet in Jerusalem, and they will conclude that the Gentiles can be brought in, and then they will send forth letters. They will communicate that to the saints as they're dispersed throughout the Roman Empire. That's big picture. Now, don't get lost in the big picture. They're going to answer that question. But what happens in Acts chapter 15, we need to shout from the rooftops, this is how to counsel. This church is built up as a series of councils, the Council of the Twelve, the Council of the First Presidency, ward councils, state councils, family councils, the Council of the Two, meaning husband and wife. The success of this church relies on our ability to counsel well. We've got to do better in the church of counseling with our councils. And there aren't a lot of places in the scriptures where we get to study how to counsel. So notice how it begins. Verse 1, there's a question. Some people are saying, except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you can't be saved. So all these Gentiles who grew up without being circumcised have to be circumcised right now. Other people are saying, no, that's law of Moses, that's past. So they have a question Bryce, I would also add, that is kind of code speak for all 613 laws of Torah. People in Jerusalem were living very strict law. So I read this, except you be circumcised, as meaning the whole bit, the whole law. That's a real big question. It's a real big question, because that true, we have had to live the law of Moses. We have had to been, be strict. Jesus then said, nope, the law of Moses is complete. So how much of the law of Moses do we still need to live? Do we need to be circumcised if we weren't at birth? 
Do Gentile converts, adult men, need to be circumcised? Do we need to follow the laws of Moses? We've got the dietary laws. I mean, we've got so many things thrown in there, right? That's the question. But notice, councils function best when we gather to answer a question. We don't do well when we're there to just talk. The council functions best if you can send out a question. Here's the question we're going to discuss in our council. That is one of the best skill sets to develop. If you are a council leader, send out what is the question we have to answer. Because otherwise, we're not going to make much progress. What's the question? Now, verse 6 They come together to consider this matter. So there has to be a coming together. Now we've started the council meeting. Now, verse 7, number 3, this brief little description is very, very important. When there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said, now I want to emphasize that, there needs to be a time to discuss the question. That's the work of the council. Let's discuss the question. I don't necessarily like the word disputing because it sends that negative message that they're arguing. The purpose of this moment of the council is to allow everyone to lay on the table how they see it. Give me your perspectives. Now, there's a misnomer in the church that councils make decisions. That rarely happens. Usually, it's the council leader, the bishop, for example, in a ward council, the president in a presidency council. There comes a point where the delegated leader is going to make a decision, but he or she cannot make that decision if everyone has held back during the discussion phase. So let me see if we can expand on that. Turn with one of the other places we learn how to counsel in the scriptures, which is Doctrine and Covenant section 102. It's the organization of the first high council. Section 102, I want to point out in verse 19, the president shall give a decision according to the understanding which he shall have of the case. Now listen to 20 through 22 as to what would make that president's decision an error. But should the remaining counselors who have not spoken, or any one of them, after hearing the evidences and pleadings impartially, discover an error to the decision of the president, they can manifest it, and the case shall have a rehearing. Now, what made it an error? Ready? Look at 21 and 22. If, after a careful rehearing, any additional light is shown upon the case— the decision shall be altered accordingly. But in case no additional light is given, the first decision shall stand. That's what makes it an error. Not simply because he or she made a decision and I disagree with it. I really wanted to do B and they chose A, therefore it's an error. No, 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 no. What makes it an error is I didn't tell them this. And had they known that, they may have made a different decision. Then it's an error. Therefore, when Peter says, let's have a discussion about this, when there was this disputing, what's the purpose of the discussion phase of a council? It is to lay on the president all of the information that I have, 
all the perspective that I see. If I hold back and don't share with the president a different perspective, I am promoting an error in the decision because perhaps that information would have made a difference. That's the purpose of this discussion phase. That's why Peter had them dispute. Tell me the different perspectives. Help me see both what I'm seeing and what I'm not seeing. Then notice back in verse 7, Acts chapter 15, after there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said, the president of the council is going to announce the decision. And after that, look at verse 12. Then all the multitude kept silent. Verse 13, and after they had held their peace, James answered. Once the president has made a decision, this is where we need consensus. We don't necessarily all have to agree during the discussion. But once a decision is made with all the light on the table, This is where we need everyone on board. This is the direction. We don't need people back-talking or bickering or complaining that their idea wasn't chosen. I may have thought the best course of action was B, but if the president stands up and says, after hearing all of this, I choose A, I'm 100% on board, and I will move forward with A. Notice what they do. Verse 15 This is the right decision because to this agree the words of the prophets. Verse 25, it seemed good to us. Verse 28, it seemed good to the Holy Ghost. Do you see they're finding agreement here? This is the right thing to do. I see it now. Now what do they do? Look at verse 22 and 23. They sent chosen men. Verse 23, they wrote letters. We're done discussing, okay? We're, we're done discussing. We've made a decision. Now let's all go out and support it. Let's announce it. We're all on the same page. Now, if someone didn't give forth their information, there's an error we need to rediscuss. But once the discussion is made, let's move forward as a united council because a decision's been made. Verse 32, they exhorted the brethren with many words and confirmed them. Now, do you think some of them may have argued for a different course of action from Peter? Probably. But now that a course of action has been declared, they exhort the brethren. This is how we're moving forward. That is how we counsel. I testify if we could get better at this, oh, the church would run so much more smoothly. So would families. Families need to learn how to counsel. Children can add a great deal of light to their parents. Parents need to seek that perspective. And I would plead with you this week to have discussions about how to counsel. Excellent. Right after this, we read about uh, Paul and Barnabas splitting up and Paul starting his second missionary journey. And really, that's going to go into our podcast next time, where we cover Acts chapter 16 through 21. We'll look at Paul's second and third missionary journeys and some of those locations. And then the final chapter next week will be where Paul goes to Jerusalem and he will be arrested. And that arrest will eventually bring him all the way 
to the headquarters of the Roman Empire, to Rome, where he will actually be able to preach the gospel and he'll be able to continue his work there. So that's what we're going to cover next week. We thank you for your time and we'll see you next week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.